As we prepare to hear God's word, let's again pray. Father, our world is so full of needs. We can look around and we can see so many things that are not right, so many systems that are broken, so many, so many causes where people seem to be directed against your ways. And if we look around or inside, if we, if we look at the people closest to us or we look at our own selves, we see so much, so much that is not how it ought to be. And Lord, we come here with all kinds of reasons, with all kinds of motivations, but ultimately we come here because you bring us here and because we desperately need you. Lord, we ask that today as we hear your word that we truly listen to and receive what you would have to say to each one of us. Work through your word to enable us to hear the truth. And Father, work through your spirit so the truth is applied to us, whether we, whether we need to be corrected or encouraged whether we need to be called back to the right way or whether we need to be reminded of how much you love us. Father, what we need to hear from you today, help us to hear. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. So we're working through the first couple chapters of the book of Luke, and we are, we are approaching the end of this series. Next week will be our last, series on, or last sermon on Luke 1 and 2. Today we're going to read Luke 2, 36 to 40, and this is really a story that actually fits with the text we read last week, so I want to review that a little bit. We separated it out in part because this has some sanctity of life themes, and in part because there are some particular things to note with these verses. So let me review last week a little bit before we get into this text. So last week we saw Joseph and Mary bring the infant Jesus to the temple and, and they bring him to fulfill all the law of Moses with regard to babies. And this is not because Jesus needs the law, but it's a sign to us that Jesus is truly human. He is one of us and he truly saves us from beginning to end. But then there is this righteous and devout old man called Simeon in the temple, and, and the Spirit prompts Simeon to be there that particular day in that particular place and to, to receive Jesus into his arms and be able to recognize that this is God come to save his people. And then Simeon gives, well, you could call it a blessing, but, but really what he says is, is a blessing and perhaps a curse, that he says Jesus will cause the rising and the falling of many. And the point that that the Bible intends to make with including that saying is to say that our relationship with Jesus determines whether ultimately we will rise, whether we will experience true life, or whether we will fall, whether we will fall away from Jesus, fall away from the Lord, and experience more and more the death of our sin and our troubles. So that's, that's last week, and then the story continues with another person coming up to Jesus in the temple courts. So let's read that story now in Luke 2, verses 36 to 40. Hear the word of the Lord. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying, Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. This is the word of the Lord. 
So the first point that we'll reflect on from this text today is that we ought all to receive the gift of life. All of our lives are a gift from the Lord, and so every human life is truly and uniquely valuable. We'll pick up this question a couple times over the course of this sermon, but, but I want us to start by reflecting on why Luke includes the story of Simeon and Anna here. Why are these two characters part of the gospel? It makes sense that the camera, so to speak, would be, would be on Jesus, and, and Jesus all the way through comes to, to truly be one of us and to fulfill all righteousness, and, and okay, that makes sense. But if Jesus is truly God in the flesh, then maybe we should expect that it would be the high priest or some of the temple hierarchy or the truly exceptional historical people who, who should be there to welcome the Lord of the universe. But it's not any of those people. It's It's these two people we hear about here. We have no other historical record of them. They were not exceptional in any particular way except for what we see here. So why are they here? And some commentators say, well, they're here because they're both old. Simeon and Anna are both well advanced in years, to to say it nicely. And people in that time and space would have been been respected if they were aged. So so it's because they're old and they speak with authority, which is countercultural for us, right? We devalue age. And And maybe that's it, but I think Luke's point is not so much listen to the old people as look at how God values all people. In Jesus' time, some people were seen as very valuable and some people as not so valuable, and that's not so different from our time now, is it? We all have, all cultures have people who they see as more or less valuable, and and we treat the less valuable as was not worth all that much. There was a time in college at Trinity that I took an interim course, and and interim courses were two or three weeks long, and you'd study some different things, you'd do some service projects. It's a fair amount like Timothy's Renew program, if you know about that at Timothy. A couple weeks, three weeks of diving into something kind of fun. And because I am a bit of a nerd, I I took an interim course that was about the history of printing, and especially the history of printing theology books. Exciting stuff. But one of the fun things was that that our professor collected a whole bunch of old books from the Trinity Library and brought them in for us to look over one day. And he he talked us through the history of each one of those books. And then we got to go up front and pick up the books and actually look at them and hold them. And and there were several books that were hundreds and hundreds of years old. One in particular that I remember is a early 1600s Spanish translation of Calvin's Institutes, a very classic book, very rare we got to pick it up and hold it and look through it. And I can read just a little bit of Spanish, so I got to see how little I could read, but it was fun. But as we went through this, there was one guy there who wasn't real awake yet, and, and he picked up this particular version of Calvin's Institutes and kind of flipped through it and then dropped it. Wham! And you could see it sort of shake and, and settle as books do. And, and the professor went, Nathan! About that high, too. He was, he was very concerned. Don't do that! That book is... We can't replace it. It's unique. It's about, don't, careful with the books, people. Now, all of us are, are to some extent, guilty, I think, of, of undervaluing what is truly valuable. And all cultures take some people and look at them and say, oh, whatever, and throw them to the side and drop them. And when we treat any human being like that, we could probably picture the Lord God going, don't do that. Don't do that. That is my creation. That human being. He's made in my image. Do not treat him or her like that. 
And yet we do. And yet they did. Now, in some respects, we live in a wonderful age that, that we can talk about things like universal basic human rights. And, and I think most people around the world would agree that, yeah, most human beings deserve basic human rights. If we think of the story of abortion in our own culture, the Dobbs court decision the last little while that, that opened the door for more restrictions and fewer abortions, these, these are some good things that were not the case 2,000 years ago at Jesus' time. But nonetheless, we as a culture still have people that we push to the margins, that we, that we drop one way or another. You know, most churches, most churches celebrate this week either Sanctity of Life or Martin Luther King Jr. Day. But there are not a whole lot of churches that talk about how all of life is a gift from God and who dig into all of these different issues across the spectrum. And culturally, we need to face the reality that more and more we value people by what they can do for us, by how they improve our lives, by how they convenience us. So as a culture, we more and more celebrate the right to abortion. And, and what I hear these days that I did not used to hear is that it doesn't really matter if, if the unborn baby is a human being. What, what matters is that they not inconvenience others who have more power. And what I hear more and more with people with chronic health conditions or, or who are a bit older or who have some kind, of, some kind of disability or some kind of anything that makes them less than perfect, well, let's shove them to the margins or let's get rid of them. The disabled, the chronically ill, the elderly, let's just, let's just move them on from this life, shall we? No, I don't hear or see as much of that in the United States as some other Western cultures, but but in Canada and Europe, which seem to be a few more decades along the trajectory we're on, there is more and more of a push to, to seemingly say, if your life does not measure up to this, then we're going to get rid of you. And what a terrible world it is to have that be a reality. And then in all of life in between those, where, where there is injustice, where there is trouble, where people are marginalized or judged, we live in a broken world. We live in a world where we all have our own lists of people who are valuable or not. And, and in God's eyes, in God's eyes, the line of people who are valuable goes to everybody. Every human being reflects the image of God. Now, we are all imperfect reflections. We are all broken and twisted. None of us can say, I am what I am and what I am is fine because all of us are twisted. But I think one of the reasons that Luke shows us Simeon and Anna here is to tell us and to remind us that, that the Lord cares about all people. Yes, he cares about the high priests and the important religious officials, but, but he also cares about the people on the edges, on the margins, people who just kind of show up. And so today I, I want to invite you, if, if you wonder what your life is worth, if you feel like you're on the margins, if you wonder if you really matter, yes, you do. And you matter not because of anything you do or of anything you are, but, but just because God made you. And God made you in His image. So see that for yourself, see that for the people around you, and see that for everybody who you encounter, that, that the Lord cares about all of us, and all of us reflect Him in some real way. 
Now, I struggled with this text a bit at this point this week because I wanted to, to build on saying, receive the gift of life and, and be able to say to everybody, now go and serve. Do the things. Care for the people. Do it all. And I actually had a whole plan for that. But as I wrestled with this text, I realized that that's not really where the text brings us. The text brings us somewhere a little different. And while I do think we need as Christians to hear the message, go and serve. Do everything you can to care for the marginalized. Do it all. I think this text actually wants to give us another message that we need to hear along with that message. So today we're going to talk about fasting and praying. Anna shows up in this text not just because she's a human being, not just because she's somebody who, who is made by God, but, but also because she spends her life serving the Lord. We're told she's very old, and, and the actual Greek there is a little bit ambiguous. It's not clear if she has lived for 84 years or if she has been a widow for 84 years. So she's somewhere in her 80s or, or maybe over 100 a bit. This is someone who has been around decade after decade after decade after decade. And how has she spent her time? How has she spent her time as, as a widow who would naturally be on the margins of society? Well, she's gone to the center, she's gone to the temple, and she's worshiped the Lord day and night, and she's fasted and prayed. Fasted and prayed. Aware of the needs of the world, but continually bringing them to the Lord. And I think it's worth reflecting at this point, and, and the commentaries that I read this week really, really push this. It's worth reflecting at this point who Luke does not show us encountering Jesus here. Because there are all kinds of powerful groups, and Jesus could have, could have shown us a representative from one of them or a couple of them meeting Jesus in the temple. But instead, Luke shows us Anna. But Luke could have showed us a Sadducee. Luke could have showed us one of the temple elite, one of the people with the most power in the society, and the people who'd gotten the most power by, by cozying up to Rome. And saying, yeah, Rome is terrible, and Rome is sinful, and Rome is a mess, but the only way we're going to build our kingdom is by, is by playing by Rome's rules. So let's play by Rome's rules. And that's what the Sadducees did. They, they did real politics. They made concessions and, and compromises in order to develop their power. Or maybe Luke could have shown us Jesus meeting, meeting a Pharisee. Someone who was part of the reform movement who said the establishment is broken. What we really need to do is follow God's law and do all the religious things right and make sure that we are towing the line. But Luke doesn't show us that. Or Luke could have shown us Jesus meeting a zealot. Someone who said we need to burn it all down. Rome is a corrupt kingdom against God's kingdom and we are going to bring God's kingdom in with fire and sword. Luke doesn't show us that. Or Luke could have shown us Jesus meeting with an Essene, with someone who said, the whole world is hopelessly corrupt. We're going to go out in the desert, and we're going to make a new society, and we're finally going to get it right. And actually, if you trace through the Gospels, you see Jesus encountering people from, from all of those persuasions later in his life. And it seems like there are ways that we could both affirm and challenge all of those positions and all of those strategies. There's something to be said for all of them. But here, what Jesus has us encounter is someone who comes to him and fasts and prays, and fasts and prays, and waits for the Lord. And I think this is a valuable model for us in these days. If all we do is fast and pray, then that, that's not helpful. That's sort of the cliche, well, thoughts and prayers, but nothing else. But it's not the fasting and praying that Anna is doing here. 
but it is a fasting and praying that can transform our approach to society. We are invited these days to compromise with the establishment to get what we want or, or to create a reform movement and lay down the law or, or to burn it all down and start over or to withdraw into our own little, Christian, own little Christian bubbles. And there's probably something to be said for all of those strategies, but, but the way we get to the right strategy is by fasting and praying. And without that, without recalibrating according to God's ways, we, we can get a bit frantic and a bit unfocused. There's a story I heard a number of years ago that I, I'm not even sure it's true, but it gets at this a bit, that a guy showed up at a car dealership to, to pick up his car, and, and the person at the desk says, well, your car's finished, but we locked the keys in it. So uh, one of our mechanics is out there unlocking it. I think he's about done, so if you want to just step outside and wait for him, you can. And and the guy walks out to his car, and as he's walking up, he sees this inexperienced young mechanic frantically doing all the things he can do with all the tools to get the car door unlocked, because it's so embarrassing when you're a mechanic and you lock the keys in the car. And the owner of the car walks up to the car and stands there for a second, and then he realizes that the guy is working on the passenger door, and the driver's door is unlocked. So the driver walks over to the driver's door, and, and he opens the door, and he says, this, this side's unlocked. And the guy over here says, yeah, I know, I got that side already. <laughs> and the owner reaches down and unlocks all the doors with the power lock and, and says, I, I, I think it's taken care of. You know, there are times in our lives in general and in our Christian lives when we get so focused on important things, and they are important things, that we lose the reality of what what we really need to be doing. And sometimes we get so worked up with our own causes that we lose our dependence on the Lord. So we fast and we pray to bring us back to the Lord to equip us to serve. And maybe what we need to do is some actual literal fasting is, is to go without food for a season. That's actually trendy as a diet these days, but, but there is a spiritual there is a spiritual component to fasting that goes far beyond weight loss or anything like that. It, the idea of fasting is to recognize in our own bodies that things are not right. It is to symbolize for ourselves and to remind us that we need, we need to hunger for something that this world cannot provide. And fasting can actually be and sometimes is used as a protest a way of saying the world is not right and I am going to call attention to that. And maybe actually fasting from food would be a good discipline for us to engage in, to, to say that the world is not right and to, to help ourselves pay attention to that. Maybe it's a way for us to acknowledge that, that I'm not right and to pay attention to that. But maybe there is a different type of fasting that is not from food, but maybe there is another type of fasting that, that you maybe are, but would be wise to consider. Maybe it would be good to cancel your streaming services or, or your cable TV or to, to let a vacation go and instead to spend that time and that money on, well, on getting closer to the Lord or on serving other people, on, on through your own suffering calling attention to the fact that the world is broken. 
Anna here is in the temple fasting year after year, proclaiming year after year that the world is not right. And that is part of our call as Christians is to proclaim that the world is not right because it is not right. It is terrible and it is broken. And we need to recognize that. The Restore program that Lambert mentioned briefly with Caring Network is is a way to do this, to recognize that in someone's past, yes, there is an abortion or, or several abortions. There is all this history. There is this, there is this lamentable reality. And we can't change that. But we can sit and we can recognize that, that this is cause for grief, that the world is not right. And yet we wait on the Lord. And fasting has to go with praying, that we go to the Lord and, and we demand We demand based on his promises that he make things better. And we plead that he work in powerful and obvious ways. We are in an increasingly angry and anxious and polarized and shrill world. And prayer takes us out of that mix and brings us back to the Lord where where we are able to say to the only one who can truly do anything that, that we see that his kingdom is not here and that we so desperately want it. Now, we as a church are in a couple years here of working on some things with the reform plan and and trying to work on some things internally, but one of the looming priorities in the next couple years is is to do more with an outward focus, to do more expanding God's kingdom and bringing the good news. But I think right now we might be in a season that's more fasting and prayer and asking, Lord, Lord, how would you have us work? And Lord, we desperately need you to work because, because our work doesn't do anything in the end. Our final point for today, Jesus redeems us. If we don't do things God's way, then we are just spinning our wheels. We are frantically doing work that doesn't get anywhere, but, but God has all power. So Anna spends decades fasting and praying and fasting and praying, and then in this text, she sees Jesus She sees the beginning of the fulfillment of the promises. And and so she goes to Jesus and she tells everybody who will listen, everybody who's around and everybody she knows who's looking forward to the redemption of Israel, this is the one. This is the one who will redeem us. He is the one who will make all things right. He has the power and he will do it. And I think sometimes we, as we go on day by day and we don't see Jesus' second coming and we don't see everything change, we forget that God is at work in amazing ways. So we spent a, a couple weeks over Christmas with my family in Denver, and, and a little bit before we went there, someone tried to break into my brother's car and didn't get into it, but they broke some door handles, kind of messed with the locks. So while I was there, we were trying to find a time to, to have a locksmith fix that up. And we had a guy who was kind of a one-man show, really good, but one-man show. And we, we kept trying to find the right time to drop it off this particular day because he was running around unlocking people's cars and stuff. And one of the questions that kept getting asked was, well, where do we leave the keys? All right, we'll drop the car off right by your shop. But do you have a drop box or something? Because we don't want to just leave the car unlocked and, and we don't want to leave the keys in the car. And he kept saying, just put the keys in the glove box. It'll be fine. But no, where do you want us to leave the keys? And finally he said, listen... I'm a locksmith. I can get into your car. Right. He didn't quite say it, but, but he kind of hinted, if I can't get into your car without your keys, you don't want me to work on your car, now do you? Well, Jesus is the ultimate locksmith. 
He can open every locked door. He can break every power. We sometimes forget that. But it's good for us to remember that Jesus truly does redeem us. And he is at work redeeming the world. Now, redeem is kind of a theology word that we use it, but I'm not sure how much we get the sense of what it means. And and what it literally means is buy us back. Buy back. Jesus buys us back. When we had sold ourselves as slaves to sin, even though people continually give themselves over to the powers of this world to, to serve the powers that be, the Lord brings us back and buys us back. And the Lord buys us back, not because he owes us anything, but, but because in his sight, we are incredibly precious. If you think of your most valuable possession or the most valuable thing you've ever held, and maybe it's a 400-year-old copy of Calvin's Institutes, or, or maybe it's, it's a piece of jewelry, or maybe it's a family heirloom, or, or whatever it might be. If you think of the most valuable thing in your life, that is the place you have in the heart of the Lord. And he values us so much that he laid down his own life for us. He came as a human being. He emptied himself of power and privilege to suffer for us, to bring us back to the Lord, to make things right. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to bring God's kingdom. Now, the kingdom is still coming. And so we are in a time of fasting and praying. We are in a time when we have to hunger and thirst for righteousness and where we have to keep going to the Lord and saying, Lord, make this right. We continue to hunger. But our fasting, our hunger, our deep desire to to see things made right will be answered someday in the feast of the Lord. He will bring his kingdom and he will make all things right, but But even on this day, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, this bread and this wine remind us of many things. But one thing they remind us of is that Jesus redeems us and he redeems the world. Are you hungry for justice? Do you hunger to have every human life receive the value that it is due as God's image bearer? If so, the answer to that goes through Jesus' death and resurrection. The only way that we will truly find justice in this life is by coming to Jesus. And and Jesus brings us to him and he feeds us with his grace, with his salvation, with his holiness, and with his righteousness. So as we receive the Lord's Supper today, you are invited to truly receive Jesus, our Lord who redeems us. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today hungry in so many ways. And often we don't even recognize what or really who we are hungry for. This world, Father, empties us out. This world starves people of what they are due and of what they deserve. And Lord, we would fix it if we could, but we can't. And so, Father, today we pray that you, well, if we are slumbering in our comfort, that you wake us up and help us to see how broken the world is. And Lord, if we are frantic in seeing all these wrongs that we can't fix, then we pray that you help us to look to Jesus. Lord, if we are serving, but we are tired and hopeless, 
we pray that you renew our hope. Father, we come to you full of need. We come hungry for you. We pray that you feed us and provide for us. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.